0: Coming up! Who was Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia?
1: Monsieur Descartes, I learned with much joy and regret of the plan you had to see me a few days ago. What was Elizabeth's devastating critique of Descartes' theory of mind? I ask you please to tell me how the soul of a human being, it being only a thinking substance, can determine the bodily spirits in order to bring about voluntary actions?
0: What can we learn about Elizabeth's philosophical views from her other letters?
2: The fire of ideas going back and forth, it forces you to pay attention. Our guest is Lisa Shapiro from McGill University. In Elizabeth's words, we don't have an infinite science.
3: The
0: life and thought of Elizabeth of Bohemia.
2: Your affectionate friend at your service,
1: Elizabeth. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Did you know that Philosophy Talk turns 20 this year? And to celebrate, we're inviting you to Philosophy Talk's first ever quiz night. On Thursday, November 9th, join us at KALW's Community Space in downtown San Francisco. There'll be refreshments, prizes, and lots of philosophical fun with us, your hosts. That's Thursday, November 9th, 6 p.m. at 220 Montgomery Street in San Francisco. Come question everything. Except your trivia knowledge.
0: Who was Elizabeth of Bohemia?
1: What did she have to say about the mind-body problem? And how is she still relevant today? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything.
0: Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy.
1: And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area.
0: Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative.
1: Today, it's the latest episode in our series, Wise Women, supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We're talking about the life and thought of 17th century philosopher Elizabeth of Bohemia.
0: Yeah, Elizabeth of Bohemia had that famous objection to Descartes. Descartes said mind and body are totally different substances, but she wrote him a letter where she took that apart. Exactly. For him, the body is material and extended
1: in space, but it can't think or feel. And, And the mind, that thinks and feels, but it's purely spiritual and it doesn't occupy space. That's the famous Cartesian dualism.
0: Right, so that brings up a pretty big question. How do these two things interact? So I wake up in the morning, decide to drink a nice hot cup of tea. That thought causes my body to move. Then after I've had that nice hot cup of tea, I'm a whole lot more clear headed. So now my body is influencing my mind. Well, yeah, that's exactly
1: what Princess Elizabeth was getting at. She asked how the soul of a person, it being only a thinking substance, can determine the bodily spirits in order to bring about bodily actions.
0: And Descartes had an answer of sorts.
1: Right. He said it's not just the body and the mind. There's also the union of these two things. The union can want tea and drink the tea and feel (laughs) clear-headed. Problem
0: solved, right? Yeah, I bet she found that very convincing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? She basically accused him of hand-waving, in a very diplomatic and princessy way, of course. She said, I know that the soul moves the body,
0: but you have to show me how. Well, Descartes kind of had an answer for that too, but unfortunately it's even worse. (laughs) He says, look, when you drop a rock, it moves downwards, down towards the earth. So that means that the earth is moving the rock without touching it. And if the earth can do stuff like that, why can't the soul? Why can't the soul move the body without touching it? I love Elizabeth's response to this. She said, You're just explaining
1: one thing you don't understand with another thing you don't understand. Nobody knows how the earth pulls all those rocks toward it.
0: Right, Newton hadn't been hit on the head by that apocryphal apple yet.
1: Exactly, and nobody knows how the mind moves the body either.
0: Even to this day, people are still arguing about it. I mean, a lot of us believe that we have souls that are somewhat separate from our bodies. That's
1: why a movie like Freaky Friday makes such intuitive sense to us. Something weird happens and two characters swap bodies. And that can only happen if minds and bodies are in some way separate things.
0: Yeah, same thing for a lot of religious beliefs. Reincarnation, immortality, guardian angels. This idea that our minds could continue to exist without our body... That's very Cartesian. Yeah, anybody who believes in that stuff should go read Elizabeth's letters. Including screenwriters.
1: But it's not just her ideas about the mind and the body that have left a lasting impact. She was also interested in mathematics, governance, the emotions, and a whole lot else besides. She corresponded with all kinds of intellectual figures about all kinds of topics and always had interesting things to say.
0: I'm sure our guest will fill us in on all of that. It's Lisa Shapiro, professor of philosophy at McGill and editor of Elizabeth's correspondence with Descartes. But
1: first, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to find out more about the life and times of this philosophical princess. She files this report
4: Elizabeth of Bohemia was a princess. That sounds great! Except she was born in 1618 in Heidelberg, Germany. This was at the start of the Thirty Years' War, one of the most devastating and brutal wars in history.
5: She was a granddaughter of the King of England and Scotland, and one of her forebears was a King of Denmark.
4: That's Sarah Hutton, a visiting professor at the University of York.
5: And I have a great interest in women philosophers, especially those of the 17th century.
4: So we're in the right time period and on the right show.
5: Elizabeth was educated more or less the same as her brothers but she from a very early age was obviously very intelligent, very studious. Um, They spoke many languages and she spoke them best of all Um, and she was known among her siblings as la grec which means the Greek because she studied classical languages.
4: As a woman Elizabeth grappled with personal sorrow
5: and the struggle to pursue philosophy. The title, Elizabeth of Bohemia, arises from the fact that her her father rather unwisely accepted to be elected king of what is now Czech Republic, Bohemia. But this led to wars and he was um, overthrown very quickly and his own lands in Germany were overrun. um, And he had to flee with his family and they lived in um, exile in the Netherlands for all of Elizabeth's upbringing.
3: The Thirty Years' War that was at everybody's mind.
4: That's Eric Jan Bos, a postdoc at the Erasmus School of Philosophy in Rotterdam, the Netherlands.
3: The whole of Western Europe suffered from this terrible war, which waged primarily in the German countries, and Austria, Hungary, Poland. It was a terrible war.
4: Of course, most people know Elizabeth from the letters she exchanged with René Descartes beginning in 1643.
3: She was very important for Descartes' own philosophical development, in a way. She enticed answers from Descartes, which he didn't give anyone. To put it another way, he wrote her letters. He didn't write to anyone else on topics he didn't discuss in that detail with anyone else. In
4: 1667, Elizabeth became an abbess, the head of a convent where Quakers, Labadus, and other Protestant sects could find refuge. Her final days were spent in Hereford as Hereford abbess. Sabrina Ebersmeyer is a professor of philosophy at the University of Copenhagen. She says that as Elizabeth was facing death, religion became more important to her. She became sick, people tried to cure her, and she became engaged in a letter exchange on religious matters. Unfortunately, she decided also to burn all her papers um, before she died, um, thinking that all this worldly fame and glory that was based on her earlier exchanges with famous philosophers, that that was just not worthwhile to stay in front of, of God in the end. But luckily, we do have her correspondence with Descartes. And for people like Ebersmeyer, reading those letters is uplifting with all this hostility towards intellectual women and all these problems she was facing, she still managed, you know, to express her thought um, and come up with very original and very interesting arguments that still uh,
3: inspire uh, today people <laughs> to think more about.
4: Meyer says that in Germany, where she's from, Elizabeth has always been kind of famous as a historical figure. But in the last few decades, she's come to be known as a philosopher, a princess living and thinking in tough times. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed.
0: Thanks for that fascinating report, Holly. I'm Josh Landy. With me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs. And today we're thinking about Elizabeth of Bohemia.
1: We're joined now by Lisa Shapiro. She's professor of philosophy at McGill University. She's also editor and translator of The Correspondence Between Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia and Rene Descartes, and most recently, co-editor of The Routledge Handbook of Women in Early Modern European Philosophy. Lisa, welcome to Philosophy Talk.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So Lisa, Elizabeth was one of Descartes' most distinctive correspondents, and he didn't always respond well to criticism, but her letters are among the ones he took really seriously. So what was special about her?
2: So that's a... I think one thing that's special about her is that she was a princess. uh, And Descartes uh, was nothing if not uh, trying to hedge his bets to find a a wealthy patron to help him with his scientific experiments. However, Elizabeth's uh, family was, um, they were in exile, so didn't have uh, uh, access to, uh, to their full wealth, uh, while the 30 years war was waging on. Um, But Descartes dedicates his principles, the French edition of the principles of philosophy, which is the work in which he develops his physics, to Elizabeth and describes her as the only person uh, who is able to both understand his metaphysics and his mathematics and his physics. She has a way of pressing Descartes persistently on the weak points of his argument but in a way that is authentic and genuinely philosophically curious without being too aggressive and and trying to score a point she's really wanting to understand the philosophical issue but i think one of the things that's really distinctive about their correspondence is that which continues for 7 years until Descartes dies is it's really two things. First of all, the topics that they range over. Um, and secondly, the fact that interspersed in their philosophical conversation are some really personal um, elements that Elizabeth's uh, trusting Descartes as a confidant, as well as a philosophical friend.
0: Can you give us an example of that? What was a, what was something personal that they talked about?
2: Um. So... <laughs> Um, in, a, in a letter from uh, 1645, um, uh, Elizabeth is ailing and um, is being treated by the court physicians with bloodletting. And, uh, um, and Descartes here he she isn't doing well and writes to her uh, about uh, uh, how she's feeling and diagnoses her illness uh, as a form of sadness that's been precipitated by the English Civil War. So um, her uncle was Charles I of England, who was, of course, beheaded. Uh, and um, you can imagine, uh, we can all imagine uh, perhaps how having uh, uh, someone in power and the purse that was supporting the lifestyle of, of the family, um, uh, not just um, unseated from the throne, but also in a particularly brutal way, would have had a huge impact. and. She trusted Descartes to talk about the impact on her emotional life of current events. But they don't really talk about that directly. It, it, it's what jumpstarts their discussion about um, Seneca, Descartes' way of treating her, me- her melancholy is, well, let's just read some philosophy and, uh, and see if it makes you feel better.
1: <laughs> so what help is philosophy with this kind of melancholy?
2: So that's a really good question. For one, it's a distraction. Um, so instead of thinking about, uh, um, you know, what's going on in the world, just diving into uh, a book and trying to figure out what's going on in it is a real um, way of redirecting your thoughts and focusing your attention on something else. And and so I think that was Descartes' idea. Except it's kind of funny, because both of them think Seneca, so the, the book they decided to read was Seneca's uh, De Vita Beata, or On the Happy Life, or On the Contented Life. And both of them think Seneca's uh, not very precise, shall we say, <laughs> that, that there's a lot of uh, hand-waving going on. Um, and so then the correspondence turns to Descartes' views on happiness and contentment. Uh, It's where Descartes actually articulates um, most explicitly his views on ethics. But then Elizabeth starts criticizing him again, just like she did in his account of mind and body. And he's been successful in distracting her from her troubles because she's now uh, in full-on uh, philosopher mode um, and trying to, to get clear on uh, where Descartes wrong and, uh, and what the right view is. So it's a really charming exchange.
0: I like that philosophical happy end to the story. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about Elizabeth of Bohemia with Lisa Shapiro from McGill University. What does it take to be a
1: good political leader? Should we listen to our emotions when we make decisions? And how much luck
0: do we need? Life advice from Elizabeth of Bohemia, along with your comments and questions when Philosophy Talk continues. From Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody to Elizabeth, the princess of Bohemia. I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except
1: your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and we're thinking about Elizabeth of Bohemia with Lisa Shapiro from McGill University. It's the next episode of our Wise Women series, which is supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities.
0: Got questions about Elizabeth and her challenge to Descartes? Email us at comments at philosophytalk.org or comments on our website. And while you're there, you can also become a subscriber and challenge yourself with our library of more than 500 episodes.
1: So Lisa, we were just talking about Elizabeth and Descartes' correspondence about how to live a happy life. What theory did they come up with about how you're supposed to do this when your relatives are part of a giant war?
2: So Descartes is got a lovely account of how to be happy. It's kind of, uh, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> uh, uh, for, for Descartes, um, you can be virtuous and in being virtuous, have contentment if you just are resolved to do the best you can. And wouldn't we all love it to be the case that uh, uh, if uh, all you needed to do was try to do what you judge to be the best uh, and then you'd be virtuous and then you'd be happy. Um, What a beautiful uh,
1: dream. It is a beautiful dream.
2: (laughs) Um, I always like to think of Descartes as uh, um, the song, je ne regrette rien. Just do what you think is right when you are having to make a decision, and you will have no regrets. Right? Uh, You should have no regrets. Elizabeth is unconvinced uh, by this account um, and pretty much uh, calls Descartes out on it in the way I think most of us would, which is, I might judge the best I can, but what if I'm wrong? <laughs> and and then I act on my bad judgment or my mistaken judgment, and bad things happen. Yeah. Um I think that's what most people worry about when they're trying to make a decision, is uh, have they thought of everything? Um, what if I'm not right? And some the opposite of what I want to happen happens. And Elizabeth feels this in a really compelling way, in part, again, because of her position uh, as royalty and the duty that she really feels clearly about the responsibility of a ruler.
0: Yeah there's something very humane about this right because as you say she for her it's practical it's real it's not just theoretical philosophical she's making decisions and not just for herself or for her family but for a multitude of people and if you don't regret when the people around you are suffering because of something you did it doesn't it seems like something's gone wrong can can you tell us lisa a little bit more about the kinds of factors that played in for Elizabeth into why we might make mistakes. What are some of the things that lead uh, rulers to get it wrong?
2: Well, I think um, the most obvious factor is we don't know everything. Um, and uh, in Elizabeth's words is we don't have an infinite science. So um, it's hard to know uh, what you should do when you cannot predict the future um, with any certainty. Uh, and, and really, um, one of the tasks of ruling right of, of forming public policy and making policy decision and policy decisions, is uh, to be able to kind of anticipate Um, what will happen tomorrow or a year from now, um, and then put in place the laws and and the policy uh, decision-making Uh, to anticipate those consequences. But if you can't predict the future um, with enough of a degree of certainty, it becomes really hard to to have any confidence in your policy decisions. Um, And I think she recognizes that as a principal challenge of uh, making decisions as a ruler. But I think there's also another challenge um, that you know when you make decisions, you have to decide what's more important, right? You have to prioritize some things over other things, and what you're doing when you prioritize some things over other things is deciding what you value, and uh, and what the value of uh, the outcomes are, the value of the people are, um, value of things, and. Well, or how confident are you in your evaluation of things, right? So is that
1: then another question where I can get the wrong answer, or do I just get to decide what's valuable if I'm a ruler?
2: Well, so, okay, so this is, I think, what's really interesting about the exchange about virtue. Descartes really focused on the individual decision-making, what's right for me in, in undertaking an action. Um, if I'm wrong about what's right for me, I'm only, I'm going to be the one suffering the consequences and, and, you know, I can live with that and not regret it. I learn from my mistakes. I do better next time. But Elizabeth's paradigm of a decision is not an individual decision, but it's a decision that, Josh, you were saying, right, that... Uh, that affects other people, right? And the idea that the paradigm case is a, a decision that impacts a multiplicity of people and a group of people and that the responsibility is not just for yourself but for the group really changes the whole calculus of decision making in a substantial way. right? And, and and then in that case, I do think, to go back to your question, Ray, can the ruler just decide what's valuable or is there a fact of the matter about that? I think that depends what kind of ruler you are. right? <laughs> uh, um, if you're a tyrant, uh, you will uh, actually just determine what's valuable um, and force other people to go along with you. Um, Elizabeth doesn't seem to take that view. Thank she clearly goodness. doesn't favor the tyrannical form of government, but rather she wants to understand, uh, I think she thinks there's genuine value in the world, but it's not something that's easily apprehended. And so her responsibility as a ruler, I, you know, she doesn't say this explicitly, but this is how I would read her, is that she takes her responsibility as a ruler to have a kind of bird's eye view and to see um, what the different competing interests are in the community that she's overseeing and to try to find the values that serve the interest of the whole.
0: That actually uh, raises another question. If I understand correctly, one of the problems that Elizabeth pointed to in decision making especially for rulers is that your citizenry does have those competing interests not everyone's the same and in particular people have these passions or we, we now call emotions and they're not everyone feels things the same way plus of course the ruler has her own emotions her own temperament which might perhaps sort of cloud her judgment at certain moments can you say a little bit more about what elizabeth had to say about the role of the passions or emotions uh, in either hindering decision-making or or helping decision-making?
2: So first of all, Elizabeth is very interested in the passions. Um, interestingly, one of the first records we have of her philosophical interests is a dedication of a, wor- a treatise on the passions by Edward Reynolds to her. Um, so she was interested in the passions before she started corresponding with Descartes. And then... In this correspondence, what she, the, the emotion she's really focused on is regret and from the ruler's point of view, and the way in which re, the, the prospect of regret can be paralyzing of decision making. If you're too worried about making the wrong decision, you can fail to make any decision at all. And she wants to find a way forward.
1: You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about Elizabeth of Bohemia with Lisa Shapiro from McGill University. So Lisa, I wanna hear more about regret. So on the one hand, this is an emotion, a passion that rulers feel. On the other hand, you said it's paralyzing. So how does Elizabeth think I should, especially if I'm in charge of something, how, how should I handle the fact that my emotions are there, distracting me. Can they? Can they be a help or are they always a hindrance?
2: No, I think they. I think they. Um, they can be both a help and a hindrance. And in fact, um, it's clear that she recognizes that emotions are inevitable. They're not something that um, we should attempt to rid ourselves of. Um, and I think here is a place where she and Descartes are really well aligned, even though um, they might disagree about uh, what the proper framework for thinking about decision making is. I think both of them uh, recognize that emotions are are not something to that we're supposed to divest ourselves of, that they're an integral part of, of our life, it is important for a ruler, uh, from Elizabeth's point of view, to have compassion for the citizenry right, and to have concern and care for the welfare of uh, the people they're governing. The issue is to regulate the passions, to feel uh, emotions in proper proportion. Um, And that's um, an iterative process, I think. You've
1: said that uh, Elizabeth and Descartes were very aligned on The Passions. And I think it's not a coincidence that uh, Elizabeth was very involved with uh, Descartes' treatise on The Passions. So she
2: commissioned it. (laughs) She commissioned him to write it,
1: so uh, yeah. So this kind of raises a question for me about sort of figuring out what somebody thought when they've got so much correspondence and didn't publish any treatises themselves but clearly have had a hand in a lot of the writing that that other people have done. How do you kind of as as a kind of matter of historical scholarship figure out which parts of this are due to Elizabeth? Like what did
2: Elizabeth actually think? That's an excellent question. I think it's also a really hard question to answer. You know, from my own practice, I guess is what I would describe it as. Um, you really have to be a careful reader and to have an open mind when you're reading correspondence um, between two people and and go in not expecting an answer, right? Not expecting to find something, but to try to really figure out what's going on. And correspondence is particularly challenging because, um, and this correspondence is also particularly challenging, not only is it an exchange back and forth, and so you got to keep track of the conversation. But they're clear. The two Descartes and Elizabeth are clearly um, sparking ideas in one another's mind, and so the the letters are not sequential. So before Elizabeth can write back, Descartes got another letter in the mail to her, and so keeping track of the fire of ideas going back and forth it forces you to pay attention, really, and to try to figure out what their relationship is. And and I love this correspondence because it's a real. It's not stylized. It's not for a public audience. It's an actual written conversation between two people who really respect each other intellectually and really trust one another with uh, ideas and objections to those ideas and and filling out answers to those objections.
0: Can I get to a, a different conversation that they had? Because we've talked about their conversation about Seneca. Should we regret uh, and the disagreement they had about that? I'm really interested in their conversation about Machiavelli because <laughs> this is something I found a little surprising that uh, Descartes says, you want to be a, a good ruler, be nice. <laughs> and if you're, if, yeah, be virtuous and then everyone's going to love you. It's going to go great. And Lisbeth <laughs> says, "Uh, uh-uh, it's going to go really <laughs> badly for you. And even for your population, she seems to embrace the Machiavelli idea of basically round up all the rebels and execute them. Uh, because in the long run, that's going to be for the best. I, I'm fascinated. I mean, a little terrified, but also kind of fascinated by it. Can you explain what's going on there in that, in that Oh, uh, God. Discussion? I'm not
2: sure I can because I'm <laughs> not sure. I mean, it's really hard to understand what's going on because um, – uh, so there's an Italian Machiavelli scholar, Gianni Paganini, who actually thinks Elizabeth's reading of Machiavelli is um, – kind of in between two competing readings in the period. So Machiavelli, was this, this correspondence is happening during a protracted 30 years war. Um, there's a lot of interest in figures like Machiavelli because there's so much uh, instability in Europe. Um, and that Elizabeth seems to have read Machiavelli when she was 10 years old is striking in and of itself. Um, but uh, yeah, they're just trying to figure out... Um, Descartes is really clueless about the challenges of real politics. And Elizabeth is very attuned to the reality of real politics.
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh, he, he's never had to run a country before.
2: Never. <laughs> and- Well, and he has the good – she asks him to write a treatise on civil – principles of civil life, which is a treatise on government, essentially, and he respectfully (laughs) declines understanding his limitations. So um, it's sort of interesting that she's interested to hear what he would have to say about – um, governance, but but Descartes doesn't want to touch that with a ten foot pole, so it's kind of, uh, and she doesn't press him to. So
1: that sounds good. smart on both their parts. Yeah,
2: exactly. But I, I want exactly. to come back to
1: a question about how to avoid regret and live well when you're a ruler. So part of me thinks like it, it should just be possible to be a good person and do a good job if you try hard enough. Like, if you try hard your hardest and you still fail, like, you did everything you could. How can you still be to blame? It seems like that's not how Elizabeth sees it. She, at least in places, seems to think you can try your hardest and do a bad job at being a good person. Is is that right? Is there an element of luck, according to her, to, to being a good person?
2: I think that is right, that there is an element of luck um, for her. And I think there's, you know, the luck of circumstance, and uh, having the requisite amount of information uh, available to you to make not just the best judgment you can, but you have enough information at your disposal, such that the best judgment you can make is actually a pretty good judgment, right? So you can just be unlucky and lacking information. But I think she also thinks that um, having the ability to make a good judgment in the first place is also a matter of luck. And that's, I think, a really interesting point, right? That uh, some people um, have handicaps uh, that interfere with their ability to reason well. Um, And if you can't reason well, you're never going to be able to make a good enough judgment to get things right. Um, She doesn't really say much about what those uh, handicaps might be. Uh she she clearly has a history, a life history of health problems um, that she writes to Descartes about. Uh there's a lot of detail about um the challenges she's facing in her health, and she recognizes that being in ill health uh can impact our ability to make judgments. And Descartes' sympathetic to that view too, which is also interesting. Uh, I think that's a really astute and interesting um, observation on her part. I think something that resonates with many of us today uh, when we talk about having a bad day, right? <laughs> and, and if you have a bad day on the wrong day, um, you know, lots of things can really go haywire. And so Elizabeth recognizes that, that that's also kind of a matter of luck.
0: You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about Elizabeth of Bohemia with Lisa Shapiro from McGill University, co-editor of the Routledge Handbook of Women and Early Modern European Philosophy.
1: What can today's scientists learn from Elizabeth's ideas about the mind-body problem? Were her ideas about the emotions ahead of their time? And how can she help leaders make good decisions in bad situations?
0: The continuing relevance of Elizabeth of Bohemia, plus commentary from Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher, when Philosophy Talk continues. With the help of Princess Elizabeth, can we solve this mind-body problem in time? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything.
1: Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Lisa Shapiro from McGill University, and we're thinking about Elizabeth of Bohemia as part of our series, Wise Women, supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can find all the episodes in the series at philosophytalk.org slash wisewomen.
0: Lisa, science and politics have changed quite a bit since the 17th century. So so what can we still learn from Elizabeth today?
2: Well, I think uh, um, what we've been talking about really even though this was a conversation happening in the 17th century, I think a lot of the issues um, that Descartes and Elizabeth discuss are issues that are very much alive today. Um, I, I do think that each of us individually are concerned about making the best decisions we can for ourselves and for our families. Um, but I also think there's no time like the present to really think about what we expect from our rulers, how we want uh, the people governing us or participating in governing us, to think about their role as rulers, as governors of a body politic, right, of a group of people who are living together, and to really think about their responsibility in uh in making uh, decisions that should be in service for a common good. Um, and that Elizabeth is really um, feeling the weight of that responsibility is, I think, in our times, a very compelling concern and one that, um, you know, we'd all be advised to, to I think, uh, take seriously ourselves and to hold our, our rulers uh, accountable to as well.
1: So a little part of me thinks Gosh, Elizabeth in some ways sets kind of a high bar for today's ruler. So, like she's she's really concerned about getting it right uh, and figuring <laughs> out what the consequences of her actions will be. She's really concerned about balancing everybody's interests. I would love for all of my rulers to do that. <laughs> But I also worry that maybe that's too high of an expectation. And what I actually want is just for like as few world leaders as possible to be
2: murderous despots. Uh, (laughs) Is she setting the bar too high? Well, yes and no. Right. I think she might be, um, you know, having the perfect be the enemy of the good, as it were, Um, that she's she's wanting a degree of certainty that. Um, no ruler uh, is ever going to have because we we just don't know stuff and the world is unpredictable. Um, but at the same time, I don't think she's setting too high a bar because what she's prioritizing is um, that a ruler be concerned with the common good. And and so the challenge, I think, and I think um, you know one of the interesting things about the exchange is this is what emerges organically through through the correspondence, is that there's got to be a way of having that concern with the common good be the guiding principle for a ruler, and yet finding a way to not be overly concerned with the the challenges of governing so that you don't make the decisions you need to make in a timely way. Um, and that cha- I mean, I think the, that's the problem of governing from Elizabeth's point of view: is how do you, how do you fo- strike the right balance so that you have the good, the common good in mind, and that's always front and center, um, but that you're not so consumed with getting to the perfect good uh, that you actually end up harming uh, your citizenry. Um, because you've waited too long or you've uh, been uh, you've vacillated too much um, uh, over what uh, the choices are. And that's the, that's the craft of governing is uh, is to actually understand when decisions need to be taken, um, when information gathering has to stop, and and when the best you can do is to communicate. Uh, clearly what you thought you were doing, how you had uh, the good of the citizenry in mind, and, and how you're, you're doing the best you can, even if the best that you can do doesn't turn out the way it should.
0: That's very, I think that's, that's very good wisdom. I, another thing that leapt out at me from the correspondence, especially with Descartes, which I think might still be relevant to our leaders today... Again, from the conversation about Machiavelli, the way I was thinking about it is who, who are you setting your principles and laws, uh, or, or who do you have in mind when you set your principles and laws? Do you have in mind uh, the good law-abiding folk, or do you have in mind the you know, less trustworthy folk? And it seemed like, you know, again, in that exchange, Descartes was much more chipper and upbeat <laughs> And he seems to think, yeah, it's going to go great. Be, be good and everyone will. And, and she's saying, actually, you know, you're often dealing with folks who might not appreciate you when you're good and they might have, you know, underhanded schemes and intentions of their own. Can, are there things that we can learn today from Elizabeth's more relatively, as you say, relatively realpolitik approach here, relatively cynical approach? Um, do you think, you know, do you think she's giving sort of more weight to the people in the community who might not be necessarily completely law abiding and well disposed to a good ruler,
2: I think she's being realistic, right? I, so I don't know whether it's um, the bigger the community, the more likely it is there'll be uh, uh, people who try to undermine the authority of the ruler, and um, you know, and and the more power you have. Uh, the more likely it is that someone will be trying to undermine you. And um, and so, you know, I don't know that she's giving too much weight to uh, the people who, uh, who try to destabilize a government, but she's recognizing that this is a real threat and a ruler would be ill-advised to uh, ignore the threat um, because then... Their kind of Pollyanish attitude, like Descartes, that it, it's all gonna all work out in the end. Um, we'll come back to bite them, right? Like people will take advantage of um, not so much weakness, but trust. And they don't talk too much about this, right? But I do think the question you're asking really goes to the issue of in order to govern, what kind of what's the degree of trust that you have to have as a ruler to govern well? Because you can't distrust everyone, right? Uh, You're not going to be a a very effective ruler that way. But nor can it be the case that you can trust everyone. And finding that balance of trust is uh, it's very delicate, right? Because if, if you miscalculate, it can all go off the rails.
1: I like this <laughs> objection of Elizabeth to Descartes' political naivete. <laughs> I do want to nerd out a little bit about her objection to Descartes' view of mind-body interaction and ask about the relevance of that objection today. So mind-body dualism is less popular now than it was when they were corresponding uh, do you think that her objection still has bite in today's neuroscience, uh, psychology, philosophy of mind?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I think that depends on what circles you run in. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, like what I like to think about her is she actually and I think this is why Descartes actually does take her seriously. Um, starting very early, is that she understands the gravity of the problem. So on the one hand, she buys Descartes physics. Um, she's actually a huge promoter of Descartes physics in Germany. She distributes copies of his principles. She gets the like Cartesian science going in Germany. And so she's on board with a deterministic, non-Aristotelian uh, physics that Descartes has. But she doesn't see the the consistency um, uh, with his account of a mind as a separate substance. At the same time, she understands why Descartes might want to think about the mind as a separate substance. Because there's something about thinking that involves a degree of autonomy. Um, and uh, the question is, well, how can that autonomy somehow be explained? within this physicalist context. So she's trying to force Descartes to really be true to his physics, but at the same time respect um, the idea that we are thinkers. Human beings are thinkers. And part of what it is to be a thinker is to to have an independence of thought.
0: And that, that seems very timely, because people are discussing free will a lot these days. That yes. was something again that leapt out at me, because she's a Calvinist. You might expect her not to be a big proponent of free will. But that's something she seems to struggle with how do you reconcile uh this commitment to free will and autonomy on the one hand and on the other hand things like her calvinism and of course her physicalist determinism how does all that work out for elizabeth
2: oh i don't think it i mean i you know that's what we don't know how it worked out because she didn't (laughs) uh, write a treatise but um you know but i think what's gripping about um her is is she's interested in the philosophical question Right, she's interested in in actually understanding these challenges about human experience. Right, on the one hand, we're scientists and we want to understand causes in the natural world and understand ourselves as part of the natural world. Um, and at the same time, we also like to think of ourselves as uh, not robots. Right, like <laughs> as having an ability to make decisions. Right, and to to choose one option over another to be praised for those decisions. Um, and those aren't beliefs that are easy to reconcile. Um, they're two parts of our self conception that actually butt up against each other. And, um, you know, and, and she really feels the force of that conflict, right, and and tries to find a way forward. So, you know, how does that work out for her? She's gripped by philosophy, and is always, uh, you know, asking questions and, and doesn't always get to the answers to those questions, but is really driven by, by inquiry itself.
0: Sounds, ver- sounds very much like what we do around here. And on that note, I want to thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today. It's been a fantastic conversation.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it too.
0: Our guest has been Lisa Shapiro, professor of philosophy at McGill University and editor and translator of the correspondence between Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia and René Descartes. So, Ray, what are you thinking now?
1: Well, I'm thinking it was really fun to read Elizabeth's correspondence to prepare for this show. And I want to emulate her when I have philosophical conversations. The, The thing that Lisa said about not trying to score points and just trying to figure out what's going on, that is the kind of conversationalist that I would like to be. And there are lots of things to like about Elizabeth of Bohemia, but I think that's my favorite. Yeah,
0: infinitely fair. Um, and and infinitely humane, but but also, you know, not going to take anything from anybody, right? Going to get in there and try to figure out what's really going on. We'll put links to everything we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can also become a subscriber and fill your mind with our library of more than 500 episodes.
1: And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature it on the blog.
6: Now, the Prince of Speed, it's Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, Elizabeth of Bohemia, eventually the Princess Abbess of Hereford Abbey, a Lutheran monastery, though she was a Calvinist, was the oldest daughter of Frederick V, briefly the King of Bohemia, and Elizabeth Stuart, his winter queen, who had 13 children altogether, one of whom, Sophia, almost became Queen of England, but died two months before Queen Anne. Elizabeth, with an S, is known today as a philosopher, largely because of what survives of her correspondence. She spent most of her life in exile after her parents were deposed as king and queen of Bohemia. In the Netherlands, she received a wide education and was nicknamed the Greek for her language skills. She also studied the fine arts and even received a proposal of marriage from the king of Poland. Alas, he was a Catholic, and she, as we have learned, was a Calvinist. As a single gal and member of a large, ambitious family, she was known to reach out to many world figures, including Leibniz, William Penn, most famously René Descartes, their letters became the foundation for her reputation as a proto-feminist, proto-philosopher prototype. She wrote no books, but she was smart enough to hold her own with René Descartes, for Pete's sake, the secular pope of the time. At her request, Descartes became her teacher in philosophy and morals, and in 1644, he dedicated to her his principles of philosophy. They were actually friends, and she was not hesitant in throwing questions at him. On his approach to the mind-body problem, she wondered how the mind could move the body, not being physical itself. More than that, she wondered about the body's effect on the mind. Now, clearly, it had one if one was ill or depressed or angry. Her own thoughts were colored by the fact that she was of a line of potential princesses or queens, in line maybe to be restored to queenitude. You had to present yourself a certain way. Did she have those ambitions? Her brothers certainly did. And she had an obligation to the family. Were any ambitions in that regard virtuous? Well, she'd be part of a ruling body with more virtue than those trying to stop them, perhaps. But also the conflict between Catholic and Protestant rage in forms that had to be dealt with, also Hobbesian, Machiavellian forces. The intention to do good does not always result in good actions. Our lives are full of regret. Without a faculty of perfect reason, we will not achieve virtue. We will not rest content, but we can't sit still. She was a potential ruler. As a philosopher, her ivory tower was on fire, so to speak. She believed in the autonomy of thought, but the free will to think is dependent on the body. She also expressed concern to Descartes that her ability to reason was defined by being a woman and subject to vapors. The wide variety of so-called female ailments that include flushing, fainting, mood swings, PMS, depression, hysteria. Descartes, to his credit, didn't think that female troubles, if such there were, posed any barrier to reason. But I don't think that was what Elizabeth was getting at. She used her exile court in The Hague to create a network of female scholars. Her network was a space where women could engage in philosophical inquiry through correspondence. While Descartes advised ruling the passions as a guide to philosophy, she was looking to rule the passions so she could make her way as a thinker without denying her nature. Reason is there to help us make our way in a wicked world, but it's reason tainted by experience even as it is guided by it which is kind of an original sin way of looking at dualism, really. How very Calvinist. In 1660, the Stuarts were restored to the throne in the person of Elizabeth's cousin, Charles II. Perhaps in relief, Elizabeth then entered the convent and became abbess in 1667. She presided over the convent and also governed the surrounding community of 7,000 people. She died in 1680 and was buried in the Abbey Church of Hereford. Funny that a Calvinist has found a spot on the feminist pantheon. They believe the only way to get to God is through Scripture. Maybe the only way for a 17th century Calvinist to get on the feminist pantheon is to become pen pals with René Descartes. Well, that's not anti-feminist. That's just predestination from a feminist perspective. I got to go.
0: Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio, San Francisco Bay Area, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, Copyright 2023.
1: Our executive producer is Ben Trefney. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research.
0: Thanks also to Merle Kessler and Angela Johnston.
1: Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the subscribers to our online community of thinkers. Support for this episode and all the episodes in our Wise Women series comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities.
0: The views expressed, or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a subscriber to our library of more than 500 episodes. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.